Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy House. I host this podcast. Thanks a lot for finding us. Before we get into our guest today... Very excited to talk to Dom Flemons. I want to let you know that if you want to stay in touch, best way to do it is to sign up for our Basic Folk newsletter. It gets sent out monthly, and you can sign up at basicfolk.com or in the show notes. There's a link. There's also a link to make a financial contribution. You can give $5 a month, get a Basic Folk beanie, which are handmade knitted beanies that my mom hand knits. You can find those in the shop at basicfolk.com. You can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. All right. Dr. Dom Flemons comes off as older than his 40 years, and I think it's because he seems like he is of a different era. This is thanks in part to his work in teaching and interpreting such old songs, such as his work with Carolina Chocolate Drops that he was in alongside Rhiannon Giddens and Justin Robeson. Originally from Phoenix, Dom is considered an expert player on the banjo, guitar, harmonica, jug, percussion, quills, fife, and rhythm bones. When he was 18 years old, he saw Dave Van Ronk in concert and was completely taken with the way Van Ronk told the stories and history behind the old songs he was playing in concert. From then on, Dom would also give the background of the songs he performed live, leading to much intense research for songs and their backstories. On his latest album, Traveling Wildfire, he began work on the album during the pandemic. He wanted to figure out a way to give the listener a way to process the world around them without being too didactic. Smarty pants. The record is filled with Dom's most personal songs about his family, history, and of course, interpretations of very old songs. We talk about all this and his strong outfit game, which I am sure no one is surprised by that came up during the interview. We're going to take a listen to a song from his new album. This is Slow Dance With You, and then we'll get to our conversation with Dom Flemons on Basic Folk. I want to pull you close and slow dance with you. 
Darling, I ain't the perfect man But I see the sun's coming up And you're lovely wrapped in dawn Darling, take my hand Dr. Dom Flemons, thank you for joining me today. It's so nice to meet you. Absolutely, real pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Okay, so I was surprised to find out that you and I are the same age. I'm actually older than you. Um, And I think it seems like it's because, like, you seem like you're from, like, a different era because of your work in teaching and interpreting such old songs. I wanted to hear from you about how you feel about your age. Like, do you feel older than you are? And is that because of your work? And in what ways do you feel young? Oh, I mean, in my mind, I, I'm still just as uh, young as I've always been, you know. Um, I started out to playing uh, in shows and concerts uh, back when I was 16, so I still think in the same way in a lot of ways, or at least I have the drive in my mind. Um, you th- you feel like a 16-year-old? Well, I have the drive, same drive and the same love of the music that I, I've, I've had from the beginning. I think I'll just say it that way. Oh, that's rare. Um, you know, yeah. so that's one thing. Um, in terms of being old, uh, I try not to think too hard about it. I, I, I don't try to be older than I am, uh, but that's something that's on everybody else if they, they might think I'm a little bit older. Um, but I don't really try to be older than, than you see me right now. It just comes off naturally, I guess. It's funny when people meet me, like if they hear my voice on the radio or even like if they talk on the phone with me and then we meet in person, they always think that I'm going to be younger. So I know where you're coming from right um, in that way. You are originally from Phoenix and your family had been in Phoenix for five generations. You're of black and Mexican descent. Um, I also was delighted to learn that your mom was a flamenco dancer. Yep. <laughs> Growing up, how did you feel connected to your Mexican roots and your black roots uh, in your family? Well, uh, I guess in my Mexican roots on my mom's side, um, that that's kind of, we have a lot of members of the family on that side that are around. And so in many ways, I always felt very connected with them and our, a lot of our dishes that we make at home in Phoenix, there are a lot of Mexican dishes as well as American food. And then on my dad's side, uh, I ended up going to college in the town where my dad grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. So he comes from a, a mountaineer type of town that's also sort of a ski resort tourist place and then also is the home of the university for Northern Arizona University. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that kept it all together was music. And my parents always had music playing of different sorts. They liked a lot of soul music, and so they were playing a lot of soul music around in the house. What kind of Mexican dishes are we talking about? Uh, we're talking mostly uh, tacos, tostadas, uh, uh, calabacitas, uh, menudo. Uh, those are sort of the main ones, I guess, that I'd say, nachos and things like that. But, yeah, mostly tacos and tostadas and, and menudo. I actually had... Um, my mom whipped up a pot when I was in Phoenix just recently. Oh, wait, what is that last one? Oh, menudo? Mm-hmm. Oh, menudo, it's a it's a tripe and hominy soup. So it's kind of like this, uh, it's a real interesting uh, combination of corn and uh, I guess, uh, uh, what would you say? It's a honeycomb, honeycomb tripe is what it, what it has in it. And, and it sort of is like, uh, I guess a dish I'd find somewhat the same as in Vietnamese food. They have pho. Um, 
menudo is similar in the way that it's sort of um, smaller pieces that um, traditionally were the lesser uh, desired parts of the animal, but a soup tradition was born out of that, and you sort of build your broth as you go along when you're, you make menudo as well. You put in salsa and cilantro, green onions. Mm-hmm. Do you speak Spanish? No, I never never learned how to speak Spanish fully. I, I took two years in school, but I was part of the, the generation that just, just didn't grow up with uh, speaking Spanish in the household. My mom did, and, um, and my nana, of course, um, but never in the household when we were growing up. But if they were speaking to each other, could you get what they were saying? Uh, I can I, I can get around it, you know. I always yeah. had a lot of Mexican friends too. That when I go to their their families' houses, they'd speak it. And then also, once I studied Latin as well, I found that I was able to grasp a lot of the concepts around Romantic languages in a, in a certain way, since they all um, yeah derive from the same root. Funny. Uh, I was talking to the folk singer Chris Smither, and I think he speaks a few different languages. And he was talking about how he's like once you like. Like what you were saying about Latin, like once you grasp at what the language is actually doing, you're able to like work through it and stuff. But yeah, I am trying to learn Spanish and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 quite a jump to to be able to functionally use it and and bring it into the day to day work environment. That's always been the problem for me. I just never uh, found myself in a situation where I was only speaking Spanish. Right. Right. We need immersion, Dom. <laughs> Maybe one day, one day that one day that six month trip to to Spain or might come up or Cuba or one of the yeah, yeah. one of the great Spanish speaking nations. You're considered an expert player on the banjo, guitar, harmonica, jug, percussion, quills, fife, and rhythm bones. That's listed on the internet in mm-hmm. a couple different places. What instrument did you start with? And then also, what was the first instrument? you connected with and how did that connection change your relationship to playing music oh i guess that would start with the first instrument um i had a practice drum pad that i had first so i started out in percussion and drumming and when i was about 16 you know years ago that uh that was when i began to play the guitar and i started to see the way that the guitar could serve as both a percussion instrument as well as a melodic instrument and a chord-based instrument. So after having played drums from, I don't know, say fifth grade all the way through high school, I found myself with a little beat-up acoustic guitar, and I started to learn songs from there. I I was always fascinated by the old-time ballads, um, country blues, um, music of Bob Dylan or Eric Anderson or some of the famous folk singers. And at that time, it was before there was a, a full-scale resurgence of vinyl record collecting. So a lot of my um, early experiences when it came to picking up music came from finding records in old junk stores or meeting people who knew the repertoire in one way or another. And, and Arizona is always a very transient town, especially when I was in Flagstaff. Mm. I came across a lot of different musicians who uh, played in these different styles, and I would take, take my notes and try to do what I could to, uh, to learn a little bit about them. And until 2005, and that was when I left Arizona uh, after finishing college and, and started my musical career in earnest. You uh, have a huge affinity for libraries, I feel. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially when it comes to researching and discovering music. 
What has been your relationship to libraries and how has that evolved? Well, the library is one of the great sources for uh, source texts, of course, but also for music. Um, I'm, you know, having uh, come of age in the year 2000, um, I I was able to inherit all of the benefits of the new wave of the new millennium coming in. And one of the ways they did it at my public library in Phoenix was that they created a huge CD section in which you could check out 10 CDs at a time. So I found myself checking out hundreds of CDs because I would just get 10 at a time and just over a period of time I would listen to a lot of different types of music and that would also dovetail into the video section of the library where they had DVDs of of documentaries like uh, like Ken Burns Jazz for example was was one example where I'd get to hear about all these wonderful musicians and then I could go to the CD stacks and I could find CDs by all of these wonderful musicians like Jelly Roll Morton or Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and and a, a whole uh, Charles Mingus, another Arizona native, um, and and that sort of set me on a trajectory of expanding my musical vocabulary. So it was all kind of like the old music that you were checking out. You weren't checking out Green Day, Dookie, well, or Sublime. Well, in, in some way, in some ways, um, I was always drawn to older music because I found that there was so much of it. For one. Uh, and right. then two, uh, I just only found a few bands very interesting when I was growing up, you know, like I listened to maybe like a, a group like I'd listen to Green Day or I'd listen to Sublime or, you know, a couple of other uh, rock acts here and there. But I found myself always interested in the oldies station with the 60s and 70s music and mm. the 50s music. So that was really my first love is like doo-wop, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino. Carl Perkins, um, then there was the Beatles, the Zombies, uh, Thirteen Floor Elevators, you know. There and but uh, mm-hmm. all the while, I never was in rock bands like a lot of my contemporaries. I was always in acoustic solo acoustic act, playing this music as well. So doing rock and roll, but on an acoustic guitar, and mm. so I always played as a solo. And over time, as I began to start reading about different types of music, I found that there were influences that preceded each of these um, different performers, you know, so like from Bob Dylan, you can find out about Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. Um, Mm -hmm. You can find out about Bob Dylan's contemporaries like Phil Oakes or Tom Paxton or Eric Anderson. And so for me, it was a combination of first searching these albums out and then also when the library couldn't... uh, provide what I wanted, I had to go to the local record stores, and I built a little network of record stores, which I would always visit and see if I could find all the records I was looking for. So just always had that that love for music and the search for great music in my heart. Yeah, it. you are a very intense researcher, whether you're at the library, learning from a master player, digging through the record bin. Um, how would you describe your research process? And then more importantly, where do you think your talent for acquiring knowledge came from? Mm. Well, I guess uh, my method for research, it, it's a little different for every type of project I might be doing. Um, some projects require a full comprehensive search into all information about said subject, like um, a few years back, I did an article called Can You Blame Gus Cannon, which was about the banjo player Gus Cannon. Did that for the Oxford American. 
And I was writing an article about a song that he had written that was satiring the very uh, infamous meeting of Theodore Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington in the White House uh, in 1900. And so for a uh, article like that, I needed to find all recorded sources that I could find that talked about Booker T. Washington. Then I had to read um, bios of both of the, the gentlemen, Booker T. Washington as well as Theodore Roosevelt, and kind of see uh, where the the fact uh, match against the fiction of the song. Would and, you read more than one bio or just one I, each? Oh, I'll, I'll read, I'll read uh, as many as I can get my hands on if I got the time for it, you know. Um, but for me, there were a couple of great books that, that sort of uh, touched upon the, the sort of journey that each of these gentlemen went down. And then, of course, I have to translate this from this historical event here into the satire that is the song Can You Blame the Colored Man as recorded by Gus Cannon in 1927 and also giving context for what Gus Cannon was doing at that time, how Gus Cannon is relevant as a banjo player and then of course uh, he made recordings in the early 1960s so he's well known for his song Walk Right In. So there are a couple of different pathways that have to be explored just to get to the article itself and get to the meat of of the research. Other things are a little bit more uh, less demanding, um, such as uh, a couple years back, I wrote an essay for um, Tyler Childers' album, Long Violent History, and just being able to condense a lot of the history of black and white uh, musical interchange in Kentucky in sort of a few words, like a thousand words or so, that's a different type of re research because then I don't have to go quite into every single detail um, about said subject. In, in this one, it was uh, Kentucky uh, music, string band music, and how it connected with ragtime and blues. And that I can have an essay like that. Um, another one is um, the most recent, actually, is the album Birthright, uh, a Black Roots music compendium, which came out on Concord Records. And so I did an essay for that. And how I wanted to approach that one was I wanted to give people a sense that for more than a century, we've had black music recordings available to us first by folkloric means and and then later on through independent record labels who were willing to take non-commercial music and turn it into something that can be um, listened for posterity by future generations so i really wanted to break away from what didn't happen and move it into a conversation of what has happened. And so for an essay like that, that was very important because it's a wonderful two disc set covers a lot of ground and uh, several generations, I'd say probably five or six generations of people that were playing all of these songs, whether it be from Reverend Gary Davis, who was born in the late 1800s to uh, Cedric Burnside or myself, who were about the same age. And, and we inherited traditions Compared to these earlier generations, they inherited a different part of the tradition. So just trying to mm -hmm. trying to tease those things out. That's that's where a lot of my research tends to um, uh, focus on is because in the 21st century, uh, there are a lot of people who don't know the stories that were just being told in the in the atmosphere when I was starting out. Because when I became a professional, a lot of the folklorists and scholars and musicians that represented um, the 60s folk revival or, or 70s folk revival, uh, they were all living and they were all very active. 
And so I found that over time, you know, there has to be someone who continues to tell the story no matter what so that mm. people can continue to sing or appreciate the songs. talked about when you were first playing out you were impersonating the sounds and voices of the people you were coming co- covering you did an example of this on your video for the guitar workshop it's a real wild ride where you did imitations like all in a row bob dylan then howlin wolf then charlie Patton. you are really awesome at impressions which i feel like trans has to translate in other aspects of your life but like when did you realize your impression talent and how did that ability help you eventually develop your own style? Well, I guess one of the the easy answer to it is that the more that you know, the more you can use at your disposal. And so for me, it's it music is a language, it's a vocabulary. And I think it also this also kind of um uh, falls into uh, my own study as an English major and studying ancient literature and understanding that there are dialects and that there are turns of phrases that define literature. And then when we're talking about music making, uh, there are moments like um, to have that sort of low voice, if you hear me howling, you know, that's a, a distinctive sound that that defines Howlin' Wolf's music. Beside him, the chords or the music or the rhythm, there's a uniqueness of the voice. And so I found that with um, most folk singers, they all had very distinctive voices. And that was one thing that drew me to every performer I've ever listened to, is they had a distinctive sounding voice. And at first, I guess when I was young, of course, you get you're unsure of your own voice. And so for me, I always tried to use somebody else's voice to get get come across because it's 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 comedy in one way because if if you're a fan and I'm a fan and then I do something that sounds like the record we can both laugh at the idea that we both know this inside joke and so that was somewhere where I started because of course I was playing in coffee houses where um as I always like to remind people like students is that where you know at the coffee house or out on the street busking, nobody has to do anything for you, and no one has to care about the music you're playing. So you can play well, but you also must be compelling to the person you're trying to reach. And so part of the the vocal impersonations, the vocal contortionism, grew out of that need to have a different way of performing that is separate from my own personal repertoire. It also made it more in- interesting for me, too, because I get to sing my favorite records. So it was also somewhat yes. of a selfish venture, too, to be able to showcase for people something that was a part of my heart. And I also was thinking about how you must crack up your daughter all the time <laughs> like you must be such a funny dad i try my best she's uh she she loves her daddy and so it's uh it's it's been it's been good to to you know now she's starting to be able to sit down and and really um i were able to really have story time now and so i'm starting to get a chance to do some more of uh the reading and really getting a chance to you know have her participate so she's she's funny she cracks me up though she was um <laughs> she she's a uh, if you could imagine she she knows about every word to the to the album traveling wildfire 
And um, one of the things she did that cracked me up that actually affected the way the record now sounds is when I first started playing back Slow Dance With You, She at the time she was about four years old, and she started singing that chorus in the back seat, and, and uh, she almost had all of the words by the first time I played it. And I thought to myself, now, if this little girl at four years old can almost recite this song, it's not only a brilliant song with a you know, a, a, a simple a simple surface to it, but it has a beautiful little melody. I knew this had to be the very first song on the record. And, and so, yeah, she cracks me up all the time, though. <laughs> oh, that's great. Talking about the history of the songs you perform on stage is like a staple of your live shows, like telling the, the, the history and the stories behind them. This is something you were inspired to do after you saw Dave Van Ronk when you were 18 years old perform at a coffee house and were quite moved by his storytelling. Since then, you've incorporated that element into your sets. How do you see knowing the context of music enhancing to a listening experience? Well, sometimes songs can be elliptical. They don't have to be direct, and they can also talk about emotions without giving you a storyline from point A to B. And one of the things that I've always appreciated when I've heard live recordings of musicians is when they tell a little bit about the song. And they just tell you a little story. It doesn't have to be a lot necessarily, but it's it actually can really enhance the entire experience when you know that a song was written about a certain person or written about a certain time in one's life. Or if it's a very poetic song, sometimes uh, the artist can reveal, you know, the extra secrets that that the audience just has to has to wonder, well, did was he talking about this or was he talking about that? And and that's another way that stories can really open up the spectrum. Uh, for me as well, uh, once I started, once I saw Van Ronk and I saw the way that he was able to incorporate interesting stories for people who are also fans of the music. Um, like when I first saw him, he had a story about Reverend Gary Davis. Um, that was his own unique experience. And that can't re- be repeated by anyone else. And so even for me, as I've gone along, as I've had stories of um, folks like my old friend Boo Hanks, who's no longer with us, I find myself uh, referencing back to those times when when uh, he and I worked together, and I can share um, pieces of information that, that are a unique part of my uh, musical experience, or even like Joe Thompson, the old-time fiddler. Um, I was the one that drove him home after all of those gigs that we used to do way back. And so he and I just talked about any old thing. So uh, there are a lot of conversations that I was able to bring up that went beyond um, the written material that I had I had uh, read before meeting him. I'm specifically thinking of um, African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia by Dr. Cecilia Conway or the Black Banjo Songsters of North Carolina and Virginia. Those two albums have a lot of information about Joe, but getting a chance to ride with him in the car, you know, he told me about how he used to see Blind Boy Fuller at the tobacco auctions in Durham, North Carolina. And it was very much his his own story telling... Uh, you know, a first-person account of seeing an old-time blues singer from the 1920s, and I mean, that's that sort of stuff you live live to be able to hear those stories. Or, mm-hmm. um, or when it came to the album uh, for Traveling Wildfire, he was the one that I asked him about the song "Tough Luck" because in 
the Black Banjo Songsters album, they mentioned the song Tough Luck in passing. And so I had a chance to ask Joe about it, and he kind of filled me in on a little bit of information on that song, which eventually, years later now, has um, has made its way onto the new album. The way that you strum your guitar or your banjo, I feel like it's pretty unusual. Like your right hand, your strumming hand, almost like floats when you're doing the the down and the up strums. I don't play guitar, by the way, but it seems like I'm watching something like pretty important and historical when I see you play an instrument, even the the bones, uh-huh. the clacky bones. <laughs> no one can see this, but I'm like making clam gestures with my hands. Anyways, um, what do you make of like the history in how you play an instrument? Well, one of the things I like to do is I like to think about what I know about the song and its time and its place and its space. And when you start to really think about it, again, thinking about music as a language or a vocabulary, it, once you begin to know about the time and a place a song was set, you can submerge your own uh, ego into really helping the song come across better. Um, in many ways, it's it's like how when people interpret Shakespeare, there's you have to, t- you know, there are classes you can take to do that. My class for country blues was being in North Carolina and and being out in the rural South, um, playing at people's feet. But there are there are ways that you can think about the song and trying to just serve the song to make it the best it can be. I mean, me, I, I commit to it. I don't I don't assume that any of my songs sound too old fashioned or old or non relevant. So when I'm playing them. They're they're just as relevant now as they were sometimes a hundred years ago, and so that's kind of the way I've always approached it. Where I don't I don't put a seed of doubt in the audience's mind about about the relevance. Uh, in thinking about the time that you came of age, me as well, like in the '90s and early 2000s, and also in like your initial musical discovery period, and thinking of like um, when you were a teenager and pre college. I imagine a lot of the artists that you were coming across were men. So when did you first come to realize the importance of and also the strife of women in music? Mm-hmm. That's a good that's a good question. Let me think. The first time I really started to think about women performers, I was actually watching a documentary film called Jazz on a Summer's Day and there's a great performance by Dinah Washington and, and Anita Day on this film. And that was when I began to think about uh, women musicians in the jazz field. Um, I guess the first time I became aware of the strife came from one of my dear friends, Peggy Seeger, and her album Different Therefore Equal, which features the song um, I'm Going to Be an Engineer. And once I heard that, I, I was... Um, I mean, I I felt like it was very important from that point on for me. What's to, the basis of that song? I'm going to be an engineer. Basically, runs through a single woman's life and the different ways that when she's born, she says, "I'm going to be an engineer, like a a train engineer." So she's walking around with her corduroys and has her her engineer's hat on. But everybody says you can't because girls can't be engineers. So then she sort of lets everyone tell her how she should live her life. So she joins the typing pool. She then has a husband. Then she has kids. And then all of a sudden, because of her recession, her husband gets laid off. 
And then now, at the last verse, she gets to be an engineer, just like she always wanted. But she then finds out she's not given equal pay. So then the boss says, you know, I only hired you because I can't afford a man. And so she goes back through her whole life and says, I've heard all of these things. And, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to fight this not as a, a, a I'm going to fight, fight it as a woman, not a lady and fight it as an engineer. And so it sort mm-hmm. of is a, a very, um, it's a very uplifting story overall. And also she's playing great guitar on it and the lyrically, it's just a masterpiece of a song, but that was when I first became aware of some of the strife that um, that women have have uh, dealt with it throughout time and history. And of course, you know the work of the, getting into the Beatles and John Lennon. And of course, I got into a lot of the solo work of John Lennon, which is very influenced by Yoko Ono's presence. And so, songs like "Mind Games," for example, um, are songs that I've always kept very close to me, especially when I think about love and partnership and the relationships of men and women. And of course, in my musical career, I've worked with a lot of women as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Always trying to push uh, material. For example, like I've always been a fan of the vaudeville blues singers, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith. Um, Then, of course, there are the lesser knowns, which are like Alberta Hunter, Ethel Waters, Elza D. Robinson is one of my favorites with a with a really snappy name too, and all of these <laughs> all of these women recorded uh, between 1920 and 1925, and nobody covers any of this material. And so even in my own work in the Chocolate Drops, a lot of that vaudeville blues that we were able to get through, the uh, Rhiannon would record. Um, a couple of those songs but those are uh, those are things i was always pushing and i still push them for any time someone wants a great song i read a bit about um is it sule greg wilson is oh, that yeah. how you say his name oh yeah sule sule greg wilson that's right sule greg wilson a percussionist banjo player and folklorist that you met in flagstaff and he became a mentor to you. Um, you were in Sankofa Strings together along with Rhiannon Giddens. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the importance of mentorship in your life? And then also, what have you learned about being a mentor? Mm. Well, mentorship is is a wonderful... It's, it's a wonderful part of a musician's development because you're you're able to sort of take the pressure off of your own self you know singer songwriters it's it's a very it's a very introspective process it's a very um you know in your head sort of a phenomenon to write the songs but when with mentorship especially when doing traditional music it's great because you get a chance to connect with people on the songs and with traditional music one of the things i liked about it was it had no instant gratification you had to wait until you got it right and you only knew that you got it right when your mentor would finally say, you've got it. And and you just have to wait for that time. And sometimes it can be an excessively long period where you're just struggling. <laughs> sounds like from experience, you know that. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had never played uh, Clawhammer banjo before I left Arizona. I had developed a style of banjo playing that was my own. And but when I went to North Carolina, I had to learn how to do clawhammer, and it required a whole different set of muscles to to play in the clawhammer style. It's part of the reason why my guitar style has so many flips and turns, is because I'm 
using guitar techniques as well as um, banjo techniques that are different uh, from bluegrass banjo, also old-time clawhammer banjo. But when I met Sule Greg Wilson um, back in Arizona, he was looking for black banjo players to be a part of the event, the Black Banjo Gathering, that happened in 2005. And so in a, in a lot of ways, we connected over this desire to help expand the scholarship of black banjo. Because at that time, the African banjo was sort of, um, it was hidden in plain sight. No one had ever 100% denied that there was an African banjo tradition or a Caribbean banjo tradition. But the examples were so few and far between that it would give one the impression that there wasn't a lot of information out there. Nowadays, there, we have a lot more information in front of us, and, and people can see that the banjo has an African-Caribbean root, and, and we can see that African-Americans and banjo playing are a piece of a, a much wider banjo uh, tradition that goes that's mm. that's a world tradition but at that time in 2005 there just wasn't a lot of information so when i met sule he was one of the he had spent 25 years working on black banjo and blues a scholarship and study in his own house so then i grabbed my study stuff and we we would just you know convene at his house and spend hours talking about the relevance of different movements different styles different ways of playing and how they translate into um our modern sense of music you know because you can find the roots of funk the roots of hip-hop and rap all within the string band music it takes a little bit to be able to hear all of those sounds but it, it's wrapped up within the big spectrum because you know all black music is it, it's it's born out of the rhythm of life that that must uh, survive and sustain you and so mm-hmm. that's something that Sule and I talked about a whole bunch and then by the time I ended up going out to North Carolina he had uh, he allowed me to uh, burn a lot of CDs that he had picked up over time that were very, very helpful CDs as I went along. Yeah, you did end up moving to North Carolina. And then you, Rhiannon, and Justin Robeson formed the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which was a huge deal um, for folk music. And thanks to the Chocolate Drops, I like in huge part, I feel like all of a sudden people were learning about the banjo's African roots, both white and black people alike. So I don't know if this is a lame question or not. Like some people don't like to talk about this, but Mm -hmm. back then there was like a struggle to get in front of a black audience playing this type of music. That was 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. So now nearly two decades later, how have you seen that evolve? Well, again, I, I try to make my music without putting too many pretenses on top of it. So I feel like the black part of my music is well represented within what I'm presenting. So it, that doesn't sway no matter who's in the audience. And so I think at first, you know, one thing to always remember is that it's it, we were in the folk music field. And, and one thing that uh, was I considered it when I was in I came into it was that it wasn't going to be a full all black audience. So I never tried to fight against the audience that would show up. But what I did find is over time, as the music became more part of the curriculum uh, that people were learning, I found more people starting to show up. And over the past 20 years, I feel that there are quite a few people of color that are in the audience nowadays, more so than beforehand. And I think a lot of that is where we were 
you know, we are planting the seeds to really find a, a foundational structure for the study of African-American string band music. And so that was something that I was always focused on. So g coming into it, I didn't really try to think of things as, okay, all black audience, all white audience. Um, I sort of took it exactly as it was. And then over time, I found that, that the seeds have, have sown what, um, what we were able to put out there. Yeah, because it was, it was really a, a struggle because you have to imagine, people couldn't imagine that a black banjo player could exist. And that's what we were, we were struggling with. So our fight was showing that a banjo player could be a black banjo player or a white banjo player. And so that's more of what we were fighting, more so than having to redirect the audience. And so nowadays, mm -hmm. younger people as well as people of color can now see that a black banjo player is not the exception to the rule, but is part of the whole rule. And so that's kind of what we had to, that's what was our struggle when we were playing as the chocolate drop. So that was kind of what we did and, and we were able to find a lot of success in that because people were really starved for it. are famously known as the American songster and I read this like on one of your Facebook comments that you're always glad to tell the history of the music that your repertoire covers however Dom I wonder if it's hard to be a black man talking about this history so I'm thinking of your contributions to that viral video about little Nas X uh -huh. getting taken off the country music charts because it wasn't considered quote unquote country music. Um, so like how protective are you of this knowledge and how protective are you of yourself when sharing context for such hotly contested debates? Well, at the end of the day, the facts speak for themselves. And so I, I keep that in mind whenever I come into play in, in any situation. Also, I try to make sure not to just jump into situations that I may not know about, because that's also a thing, too, is that you can believe something about music. But sometimes your belief, which could be from hearsay or from things that you've heard, may not be the full truth. And so I've always tried to make sure that whatever I'm commenting on, I'm telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, mm. And and that served me well in that way. When it came to like Little Nas X, it, I found it to be the beginning of a v interesting phenomenon that came on with the rebirth of the black cowboy in popular culture. Now, I spent 10 years working on an album called Black Cowboys, two years of actually making this thing, but about 10 years worth of research. And one of the things that I didn't want to do is I didn't want to spend a lot of time on the black Hollywood cowboy. I have a couple of references in the liner notes, but I wanted to focus on the working class cowboys and the history of the migration of black people after, after slavery going into the 1960s, because I felt like... Many people have an uncle, an aunt, a grandparent, or a great-grandparent who could who understood this whole history, and I wanted to sort of invigorate that aspect of black culture because I felt like it was just right below the level, uh, right below the 
you know, the level of uh, consciousness for a lot of people. Mm. A lot of people would mm-hmm. say, I'm not sure about black cowboys, but when you start to see pictures, just like with me, I personally had the same response. All of a sudden, my my grandparents' story of growing up in Arkansas and Texas and making their way to Arizona, uh, all of a sudden, it wasn't such a foreign story anymore. And, it, and it, they weren't necessarily cowboys, like we would think just cowboys, but black Western people uh, moving out west and building a new life. That that was what I wanted to um, convey to people in Dom Flemish Presents Black Cowboys. Now, it's interesting because Little Nas X sort of came in at this one juncture where you had the idea of black cowboys being out there, but also uh, black country music coming into play. So I, I played with the idea a little bit on the album of having country and western music that had a black feel like um lonesome old river blues was an a, an experiment into that uh roy acuff number and we kind of did you know i get, kind of gave him a nice bluesy uh a bluesy sound on top of that song but with little nas x he opened up a new chapter in the black cowboys and black country music story where you have a full incorporation of hip-hop and rap into black rural music because black country is country and western like charlie pride but then there's also black rural people which is also where the black string band story tends to overlap and so black rural people all of a sudden pushed back and said they wanted this type of music they want old town road to be their representation of their community or culture or they just wanted to rock out to country music that sounded like that and and that's something that um it's hard to be able to anticipate a big hit like that but for me i I don't try to be protective about my history because you can find it anywhere i make sure that the history is some of it is is common knowledge but i don't i don't tend to Uh, hold uh, top secret information in my back pocket for a lot of my history so when it came to little Nas X especially once Billy Billy Ray Cyrus joined in instead of it just being a hip-hop infused black country and western cowboy song now with Billy Ray Cyrus you have a um, a black white duet which has been done many times especially in the 1990s and and up into the present, there have been a lot of black and white duets all the way through uh, country music history. And so I just answered all the questions they asked me accordingly when, when asked about the song. When it comes to the Billboard charts, I mean, there's only so much you can do with certain things, but I'm, gl- I'm glad that the controversy helped him out more than it diminished him. The new album, Traveling Wildfire... So in the press release, it says, Traveling Wildfire, the musician and scholar turns inward, facing the highs and lows of his years on the road as he brings his own songwriting prowess to the forefront. You have never released such personal songs before. So let's talk about vulnerability. Like, how vulnerable was this process for you? And if at all, how did your scholarly background impact your ability to open up with these songs? Mm, that's a good question. Now, for vulnerability, a lot of my music, I tend to keep the music very up-tempo. 
it's one of the things that's that's kept me that sustained me for a long. No one can tell what's going on. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's all it, up tempo. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things is you, over the past several years, you know, I'm I'm in a specialized type of music that I'm going against the dance music of the day. So up tempo is a way that um, it it's very easy to be able to just let let an album just fly right by you. And so that's what I've done for the past couple of records. Um, for this one. I started reaching into my old notebooks to see if there were songs that I had written that that could use a um, a use a, a revamp because I've put out so many albums now. I just wanted to do something and say I'm not going to try to do anything too structured. I'm not going to try to do anything conceptual like Black Cowboys, but I want to um, reach into my own heart about it. And so, like a song like Slow Dance with You, I had written that one quite a few years ago, and I always thought it was a good country number. But I had never had a moment in which to play it on stage. Because, of course, when playing old-timey music, the audience also would like you to stay in playing old-timey music. So a song like Slow Dance With You never felt appropriate in my shows. And so I finally pulled that one out. And then another song, let's say like... um, Let's say like it's cold inside. That's another one. I I was in a kind of a rough spot when I did that one. I had... um, I had just left the group there, and and um, I had uh, my first marriage broke up. I was in a real tough spot when it came to how I was living, and and that one I wrote sort of within that period, and I sort of just set it in the notebook because I didn't want to get too far down in the into the the deep dungeon of uh, of my heart, <laughs> not at that time, and so I when I was doing. Uh, traveling wildfire it it seemed like a proper song and i and i wanted to be able to give it a new a new life and a new approach and then also these two songs probably wouldn't have made it onto the record if the pandemic hadn't come in the way it had and hadn't extended out so long um because i started to start checking in with friends of mine and I started to see that they were all having a tough time too and that the past couple of years were really rough for everybody and so I found it's cold inside sort of took a it took a sort of a different turn when I started to think of the lyrics again because it, it to me related to a lot of a lot of people who are out there in the world that were having a tough time you know they're keeping keeping holding face you know but at the same time still having a rough time so there was stuff like that. Um, I, I did write one song to my wife in Dark Beauty, and I wanted it to be somewhat of a sequel to Black Cowboys in a way. Like it start uh, the song Black Woman starts off uh, uh, the Black Cowboys album, and I kind of wanted to do a sequel to it, and also delve into um, the futuristic cowboy stuff that uh, that I didn't really focus on on my on my album Black Cowboys. So that's where stuff like uh, Nobody wrote it down, and then also saddle mm. it around. Sort of fell into play on those those uh, particular songs. Um, okay, I have a question about nobody wrote it down. Um, that song finds you studying the genealogy of black migration and movement from slavery to the Buffalo Soldiers, Pony Express riders, cowboys, and Pullman porters on trains. And in that essay that you wrote for Tyler, you said one of the most amazing aspects of learning traditional Southern string band music 
is that in the most ideal situation, it is not written down. Mm-hmm. It is played until it is correct. Interesting juxtaposition. So in thinking about that, what is your perspective on what got written down versus what didn't get written down? Oh, well, I mean, n- not enough got written down. You'll find no matter what, not enough was ever written down. And that's one of the sad things that you find is that for whatever reason, sometimes it's not even malicious. It's even, uh, the you know, stuff isn't written down because the materials and the knowledge nor the forethought to, to capture things for posterity just weren't there, you know. And that's one of the things that makes that song, Nobody Wrote It Down, so interesting is that it's, it just captures just a little glimpse. And that's one of the things that made that so intriguing in the the songwriting process with Carl Gustafson and Billy Branch, who co-wrote the song with me, is that it, it, it just gives you just a little taste, you know, and even the, the, you know, the, the Pullman Porter, I mean, he's saving a woman where the, the boiler blows and there's fire that's coming at her. And then he like, it, you know, it turns into a, this really action packed sequence that nobody wrote down, you know, and it just sort of mm. settles itself into that. When it came to the Tyler record, one of the things that was so amazing um, to witness was that Tyler Childers hadn't been playing the fiddle all that long when he started that album. He had only been playing for about half a year because he had, I believe, he had had a um, a collarbone injury or something, and he, so he wasn't. He was, you know, oh, that, yeah, that would be tough. And so he was playing the fiddle Sits a little right bit. Here. Yeah, so he was just he was just starting to play the fiddle, and he sounded so good playing along with Jesse Wells, that was one of the reasons I ended up uh, writing that line, is because if I didn't tell you he was a a beginning fiddler, that album would give you no indication that he was still very new to the fiddle, because it sounds correct. It, It sounds like it's... It sounds like it's uh, it's powerful music, no matter what. And so that that's one mm-hmm. of the things that makes string band music so exciting in many ways is because it's it's a democratic music. And also, you can have a musician who is very good at just a few things, and they can make they can make a whole world of music out of just a few simple uh, tricks or a few uh, few uh, simple lyric licks that are when well placed, make all the difference. You began working on the album Traveling Wildfire during the pandemic, and you wanted to figure out a way to give the listener a way to process the world around them without being too didactic. Very good vocabulary (laughs) word. Dom, you are a very, very smart person, and I'm wondering how hard it is for you to have your brain and have the knowledge you have while still being accessible to others. Well, you know, uh, always, let me think how to say this, um, because I started out busking on the streets before I had my full education and everything like that, there's all, I'm always reminded of the humbleness of, of connecting to people on the street and meeting people eye to eye right at the ground level. So I've never lost that whenever I've gone out into any musical venture. And so I try to keep that in mind when I when I meet anybody, whether it's someone that's way famous, way, way more famous than me, um, or if it's someone that is just a person that's walking up and saying hello. I try to at least be conscious of 
what a human being, uh, how they would like to be treated. And, you know, it's this, just the golden rule in that way. I, always, I also take a step back in, in a lot of conversations because I want to hear what other people have to say. And sometimes it, it's, it can be easy to uh, overrule a conversation if you just spout off everything that you've done or you try to get everything said that you've ever done leading up to it. Or you're like the actually guy. Actually. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. And, and <laughs> I, just, I just have always tried to not really be that type of guy just because... You know, that's just my personality, but also I like giving everybody else the floor. That's also when you see me mm-hmm. collaborating with other musicians, I do that too. I let them, I let them have their, their time and I get my time. And I, I, also, I always try to be real democratic about that stuff. How do you say your wife, your wife's name? Oh, uh, Vania. Vania Kennard. Yeah, that's it. Um, you have such an adorable family and she... <laughs> plays a big role in the behind the scenes of your music she's also Mm co-hosting with you on your radio show she seems really rad um what's it been like to incorporate her into the business side of your career well it was it, it was actually it's been great i'll say it that way in a single word but when I met her, it, it was, we funny enough, we met at Millennium Center, the Millennium Stage over at Washington, D.C. at a Lead Belly tribute concert. And she didn't really know much about Lead Belly, and I was the one who was hosting the program. And of all people, um, the headliner that night was Robert Plant and Allison Krauss. And so Robert Plant invited everybody out to dinner. And then I, I happened to meet Vania at the dinner oh table, met her at the dinner table, <laughs> and um, I, we exchanged numbers, and then we went out on a date a couple weeks afterward, and it was just love at first sight, you know, and and also she comes from a, a very strong uh, political background. She was working with, um, working as a part of a... Uh, uh, Barack Obama's like presidential campaign in 2012, and and has done a lot of really amazing work with uh, in in her capacity for for her job, and so when she told me the type of work she was doing, and she was thinking about getting out of politics. Um, I told her that she should just come on the road with me. I said, you know, you're not going to make the same type of money, but you'll at least get to travel the world. And so she said, <laughs> yes. Have you considered folk music? <laughs> yeah, and so she, she said, yes. You know, again, <laughs> the first time I had her over, she asked me, she said, would you like to me to help you organize your records? And I said, yes, this is it. This is it. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And she's she's great when it comes to co-hosting the radio show as well. She's um, bringing a great perspective in. Um, also on on traveling wildfire, she was um, she helped curate the design of the album. Uh, we had a wonderful artist, Marina Martinez, working on the mm. the album art, and Vanilla was helping guide the way we um, focused on the way that the product would come out all together. And then, of course, she's mm. a part. She's in the moon, so you get to see her. Oh, in the I was moon. wondering who was in the moon. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> and yeah, that's a that's a beautiful. Uh, wet plate collodion tin type we have of her and we we interspersed we imposed it into the moon so she's i'm actually singing to her on the album cover Mm. (laughs) stop it that's so cute um okay the dom flemins imagery is strong the (laughs) outfits and i would say even your speaking voice are quite striking 
What has been the evolution of your presentation, your style of dress, uh, and your style of speaking? And then how did you land on what you landed on? Mm. Well, I guess um, the first thing I started to think of, because again, at, at, at my age and, and your age as well, being a part of the forefront of the new millennium, there was, you know, Y2K was a part of that time. And coming out of the 90s, the 90s were sort of a upending of traditional values or traditional imagery. And then the 2000s was sort of a space where people were wanting to break away from the traditional mold of business, which, of course, then bled right into uh, Facebook and, and social media and all of those things in the years that passed. But for Apple me, music, too. Yeah. yeah, and Apple music. And so it, it sort of things changed very quickly um, from 2000 to 2005 to now we're getting to 2023. I was always a big fan of silent film. And so iconography is, is the whole premise around silent film. And I particularly was a fan of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, uh, Fritz Lang and his movies like Metropolis and all of those uh, old uh, silent films. So I was always drawn to that sort of imagery. And when I began to learn uh, the music of the 1920s and 30s, I started to try to juxtapose those images next to each other so that um, you could find a distinctive look or a distinctive feature that would define what I was presenting, just like Charlie Chaplin was the little tramp. And even if you've never heard of who Charlie Chaplin is or the little tramp, if you've seen that little character, he's so distinctive with the little coat and the, and the hat and the little mustache and the cane. Or uh, there was another guy, Harold Lloyd, who had a big hat, kind of like the one that I wear and big round glasses. And that was sort of, um, that was something that I found uh, very appealing and as I began to read about these directors, they began to talk about the way that at the time you had to have one distinctive feature that everybody could could catch on to and it would come back again and again. And so for me, it was plaid shirts. And then I ended up putting these suspenders on as a way to be able to just accentuate the color. And then that was that was sort of where it where it went from there. You know, you can. There was a there was a group as well called the Kingston Trio uh, that they also wore striped shirts. So that was their big thing was striped shirts. And basically, one of the things functionally that uh, of why they picked these striped shirts was that you could find them very easily uh, at any men's uh, 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 men's clothing store. And the same thing with the plaid, I can find these at any clothing store. So. They have some outrageous colors, and I've I've experimented with those colors um, for quite a while. Cause I I never was much of a guy to wear a three piece suit, nor was I the the Hawaiian shirt guy or the um, <laughs> or the the Chuck Berry shirt. Um, you have to look up Chuck Berry in the seventies, but the Chuck Berry shirt I never could pull off the real outrageous shirts. So this was kind of where I landed here. Do you do your own sh like you? Do your own shopping and styling, so you've you've done it all. Oh yeah, absolutely. And even yeah. my even my hat, um, my hat uh, here is a brand of hat called an Akubra, and I picked this up in Australia at a little shop over by um, in a place called Katoomba. And this little hat is a, is an Australian cowboy hat, but the way that the crown is built 
is almost like a pork pie hat. And I used to wear a pork pie hat all the time. And I realized mm-hmm. when I found this, this Akubra hat, I knew that it'd be a very unique piece of, um, piece of my regalia. But also, it, it also is a symbol of where I've gone, having gone to Malaysia and Australia and all over the world performing the music. It also gives me just a little, a little piece of that, that uh, traveling It'd probably be fun to go shopping with, like vintage store shopping with you, <laughs> yeah. or all around the world, you and Vania. Oh yeah, that that would be that'd be wonderful. We'll have to get we'll have to get that uh, get that get the funding on that one together. <laughs> okay, great. You write a grant. Yeah. <laughs> shopping trip with Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.